welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast, a very unique and educational and inspirational show this week. And I've long admired this week's guest because she was a pioneer, is, is a pioneer uh, in so many different ways in the game of basketball and not just the game of basketball, but the game of life. She saw perceived barriers that were before her and she knocked them down and she knocked them down with dogged determination the complete unwillingness to accept anything but her own dream and a lot of talent and hard work and that person is Nancy Lieberman she is one of the greatest uh, basketball players of all time she is uh, a phenomenal example of seeing your dream, visualizing your dream, and doing everything that it takes, everything humanly possible within you, every ounce of your being, to achieve and even exceed those dreams. And as you hear her speak today, as you listen to this 56th Marty Smith's America podcast, you will be taken aback at some of the things that she experienced at the lengths to which she went to make sure that her dreams became reality. And within the scope of achieving them, showing everyone else, regardless of obstacle, regardless of preconceived notion, that there is no no. If you want it, you go take it. I am so inspired after my conversation with Nancy. I learned a lot about her. You will too. Some of you may not even know her story. And if you don't, buckle up because you're about to hear the American dream personified. Before we get to Nancy, you know, hiring hiring can be really challenging, Travis. But you know what? There is one place that you can go where hiring is in fact simple, fast, and smart A place where growing businesses connect to qualified candidates. That place is ZipRecruiter. What if you had your own personal recruiter to help you find a better job? Now, ZipRecruiter's technology can do just that for you. All you have to do is download the ZipRecruiter job search app. Let it know what kind of job you're interested in. And its technology starts doing all the work. The ZipRecruiter app finds jobs you'll like and put your profile in front of employers who may be looking for someone just like you. If an employer likes your profile, ZipRecruiter lets you know. They tell you that a potential employer likes what you have to offer. So if you're interested in that job, you can apply immediately. No wonder ZipRecruiter is the number one rated job search app. You guys should download the free, it's free, ZipRecruiter job search app today. Go do it right now. As soon as you get done listening to this podcast and subscribe rating and reviewing, you need to go download the ZipRecruiter job search app right now and let the power of that technology work on your behalf. Don't wait. The sooner you download the free ZipRecruiter job search app, the sooner it will help you find a better job. Speaking of better jobs, uh, Nancy Lieberman has held many different positions within the game of basketball. 
And as I stated earlier, she is a true pioneer in the game of basketball. Not only that, you'll hear about her unbelievable friendship with the greatest, Muhammad Ali. That was one of the the portions of the interview that just stopped time for me. Hearing the impact that he had on her as a person and as an athlete. It's just a remarkable life story and a remarkable conversation. And I know you guys are really going to enjoy this. Here's my conversation with Nancy Lieberman. We're going to start with what you're doing now. And I can't help but wonder, what's it like when you answer the telephone and ice cubes on the other end? (laughs) (laughs) It's ridiculous. (laughs) Um, Because, like, the first thing you go is like, man, how'd you get my number? I'm ice cubes. (laughs) (laughs) okay all right so you got me there and it it was one of the cool things i mean look i've had a really full life with amazing um people i'm blessed beyond recognition and to have this man as my boss or for him you know to hit me with a text you know hey nl how are you doing (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, at my uh, my Nancy Lehman Charities uh, Dream Ball event in, in uh, February, we honored him and Dr. J. And in his speech, he called me his spirit animal. And I'm like, that's good, right? Like, a spirit <laughs> animal, that's a good thing? <laughs> Nobody's ever called me a spirit animal before. But he goes, we're, we're, we're so much alike. And he was like, you know, she's a white girl from New York. I'm a black guy from L.A., uh, you know, we go over things, we go around things, we go under things, and sometimes we just got to go through them. <laughs> <laughs> I, lo- I love this guy. He's he's such a super cool, amazing human being. I'll leave it at that. He is. He's unbelievable. And I know that you were in your uh, in your adult young adult years when he and his peers just blew up and completely changed music. I mean, they were revolutionary in what they did as musicians, as artists. How much did you listen yes. to NWA and Cube and Dre and all those guys in their early years as artists and your early adult years? So for me, um, obviously, having grown up in New York and spending um, a lot of my youth uh, playing uh, in the inner city, in, uh, in Harlem, in Rucker Park, I was obviously very attuned uh, to rap, you know, run DMC. And uh, for me, it it was a little cathartic because we all have something. And I could listen to their music and sometimes hear their pain because of some of the things that uh, went on with me in my childhood with, you know, no father and no food and no electricity and I, there were times like at 8, 9, 10, 12, I, I felt hopeless and helpless. Like you get to see the kind of the shined up version of a human being. Um, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And so I felt their pain. I feel Eminem's pain in his music even today. So I, I had, they're, they're, they're very relatable to me on many levels and people go, come on, man, you're a 60 year old white woman. Why? Right? No, <laughs> I, I, I know what I am, but thank you for identifying that. But I'm also a human being, you know, that's fallible, that has overcome stuff to, but I'm, I am where I'm supposed to be in my life. This is where the good Lord wants me. 
and it's it's like it's not a mistake, Marty, that you and I are doing this uh, this interview today. You know, on your podcast. I mean, I admire great people. I admire your work. I said it before we came on air. Uh, I love your humility. I love how you know grateful you are. But I just like how people respond to you, and and that's a reflection of the man you are. Well, that's uh, that's ex- <laughs> it's uh, kind and and it's it's uh, humbling. It's humbling to hear that. And thank you. I've been really fortunate to be placed in positions where people believed in me and gave me opportunities I might not have deserved, but. I'm a guy that if you give me an opportunity, I'm going to maximize it and kick damn doors down. I'm not afraid to try. I'm not afraid to crash and burn because I tried. And a lot of people and, have blessed me in that and way. And that you would be his spirit animal. You would be cute spirit animal for your <laughs> attitude of what you just said. You said something a moment ago that really struck me. So you're this young woman in new york and you're playing at the world famous rucker park i can't imagine what that must have been like i can't imagine playing at rucker park period but especially being a young woman in that era what what was that like well it uh, obviously uh there was one of me but um i can remember at 11 or 12 years old taking money out of my mom's wallet to to take the a train from far rockaway change it change in New York and then take the E into Manhattan, get off at 155th and, you know, Malcolm X uh, Boulevard and walking into the park. And I would, I would take the train and I'd have uh, t-shirts in my jacket. So I look bigger on the train and I would just glare at them, you know, with like my blue eyes and red hair, like do it to them before they did it to you. And these guys in the park, it's really a phenomenal story, Marty, because I mean, I was scared, obviously, but I knew I needed to play against the best, even at that age. And these guys would come up to me and go, little girl, you know where you are? And I said, yeah, I'm at Rucker Park. And I'd be like, are you good? And they'd look at me. I said, well, I came here because I want to play against really good guys. And I had my New York accent. I'm trying to give you New York at, at 12 years old. And they're like, you're in Rucker. I said, yeah, I know. I'm in Rucker Park. I'm like, what's your name? Is your name Rucker? And the guy goes, no. I said, good. It ain't your park. And I want to play. And and, and I want you to help me. (laughs) And they became so good to me. And they would take the train home. They would protect me. I mean, I was protected so much and championed by African-Americans in my youth where maybe, um, and I'm not trying to pick on white people, obviously, but white people would tell me I was stupid, dumb, never make anything of myself. Why is a little, you know, Jewish girl playing in the street with black kids? And, you know, inevitably I would have to, you know, sometimes fight and sometimes cause I didn't have conflict resolution, but I got tired of people telling me what I couldn't be. I, I needed to hear, we all need to hear what we, what we can be and and have positive around us. And that never happened to me until I heard of Muhammad Ali and then had the incredible fortune of meeting him at 19 and being, he picked me. We were lifelong friends to the day we buried him in Louisville three years ago. That was one of the most surreal times I've ever had I was actually speaking of great blessings professionally I was chosen by ESPN to go spend that entire week 
there in Louisville and do my very best to try to help tell his story. And I had the great opportunity to spend time with Derek Anderson, whom you probably know. And mm-hmm. DA grew up in that same neighborhood and has had his own tremendous impact on all types of people. And to see, to stand at Ali's childhood home and to see hundreds of people lining the streets in tears and in homage to his global impact. Forget the boxing. You know, the boxing ultimately seems as if it might have been. Yes, he's the greatest that ever did it, but it was a vehicle to so much impact. And I can't imagine what it must have been like to know him personally the way you did. How would you even begin to define his influence on your life? Um, Every major thing that happened to me, he had his thumbprint on, even back in the, you know, when I was trying to come back at 39 to play in the WNBA, um, I was like, you know, and he's like, you have to do this. You have to do it. Like you talked about how you weren't afraid and whatever the consequences were, uh, sometimes you crash and burn, sometimes you flourish and fly. And he was always so positive with me. But, you know, he would tell me things that were going to happen to me before they happened to me. Uh, You know, I can remember him sitting me down and teaching me about racism and teaching me about people profiling and how he, he would say, Nancy, the better you get, you're like God's, one of God's chosen people. I'm like, how do you know that? He goes, I just, I just know, and you're destined to be different. And I, I didn't have a, a grasp on that uh, mentally or emotionally because I was just bawling to be somebody. And, you know, like I I told him one day a long time ago, I said, you know, Muhammad, the first part of my life I was learning, the middle part of my life I was earning. And at this stage of my life, I'm returning. I'm giving back. I want to be faithful. I want to be a great uh, role model. I want to be a great philanthropist the way he was. And he just he gave me a, a kiss on my forehead and he just said, it's all happening for you. Uh, it, it, Marty, when, when I got hired by the Kings in 15, um, I was in the gym here in Dallas at Plano West with uh, Del Harris and my son, and Vlade calls me. The next call I made was to the Ali's, to, to Lonnie, and I'm like, Lonnie, where's Muhammad? And she goes, honey, what's wrong? And I go, can you put him on speaker? And I go, the Kings just hired me, and she goes, Nancy, He's acting like he's shooting. I'm like, don't do that. You have no game, okay? You, you got no game. We, we've talked about this. And and she goes, why do you do that to him? I'm like, I don't know. I'm sorry. And she goes, we're coming to your first game when you play the Suns. I'm like, how are you coming to my first game? She goes, we're, he wants to come see you play. He wants to be behind your bench. So we play in November – of 15 and Ali is in the suite behind us waving and blowing kisses. And, you know, DeMarcus and some of the guys are like, now what's the champ doing here? And I think Rondo said, Oh, that that's coaches. That's coach's friend. It was like instant street cred, you know, that Ali <laughs> took pictures, you know, with so many of our, our people with the Kings. 
I would sit at the house and hold his hands and wipe his face. He liked those freezer pops. And I would just, I would just say to him, you know, I just, I love you so much for what you gave me. And you've always been there for me. He was the dad I never had. He was that amazing male presence in my life. And if I sound like a, a 10 year old, that's, that's who I am with him because he was so impactful to me as, as a woman, as a professional athlete, as a public figure, what to do, how to handle myself, how to give to people. He told me there's two people in life. There's givers and takers. He goes, I want you to be the giver. Done. Remarkable. Uh, that, it, crazy, have, right? It is crazy. And to, for someone, look, there's, there's never been a more influential, more famous human being. Maybe Jesus Christ. Maybe, right? Yeah. Um, yes. But he, Muhammad Ali's influence is eternal and it is global and it's uh, indescribable. I, I wonder if you could try to describe what you believe his influence on humanity to be. Uh, his influence on humanity for me is uh, simple, um, and I'm, I'm going into my phone because I want to read something to you, and I'm just kind of, you know, uh, trying to kill a little bit of time here. I want to read this Take to you. It's, it's on his grave, and um, yeah, I got it right here, and uh, it says this. He took a few cups of love. He took one cup tablespoon of patience, one teaspoon of generosity, one pint of kindness. He took one quart of laughter, a pinch of concern, and then he mixed willingness with happiness. He added lots of faith, and he stirred it up well, and he spread it over a span of a lifetime, and he served it to each and every person he met. Wow. Is, is that, I mean, did that not give you chills? Yes, ma'am. It did. It did. Um, you know, uh, I remember Lonnie after like maybe six, seven months after the funeral, you know, we were talking and she goes, um, honey, I go, yeah. She goes, you need to go see Muhammad. I was like, what? She goes, you need to go see him. And I was like, uh, okay. I got on the plane like two days later and I flew to Louisville and I spent the day just sitting there at the gravesite, just with him talking to him, telling him how things were going for me, my life, my family, my career. It was one of the most amazing um, afternoons I've ever had. Just I just sat with him. Why do you feel like Crazy. Lonnie implored you to go? She just, um, I don't know, actually. I don't want to speak for, for my sister, uh, Lonnie, but she just knows my relationship with him. And something hit her, and she called me. She goes, you know, honey, um, it, Muhammad wants to see you. And we're pretty normal people. We're not, like, out there. I'm pretty reserved and stuff like that. And I literally hopped on a plane and went, didn't say, you know, think twice, and just was there with him. I think it's beautiful. That's absolutely beautiful. <laughs> I, I loved reading about... I think the moment you met, I think this was the moment you met, New York Stock Exchange, 1979? Yep. <laughs> what was it like when you walked in there? Now, I think, as I recall, you're going there as an Olympic athlete, and you're going to do an appearance of some sort with another Olympic athlete, and you walk into the Stock Exchange, and there is the greatest standing there. Is this accurate? 
<laughs> You're spot on. I went back to New York. Uh, we had won our first championship at Old Dominion University. I'm player of the year in college basketball. You know, I mean, I'm still fraudulent, <laughs> but I'm still hiding behind being Nancy Liebman, the basketball player. But things were feeling good for me. And um, I'm with my mom and my best friend, Barbara. We go to the stock exchange. We're going up the escalator. And I ask the gentleman, I go, so who's the other athlete? It kind of sounds a little arrogant. I go, so who's the other athlete that's with me? And he goes, well, we're going in the green room now. I said, well, who is it? And he goes, oh, yeah, it's Muhammad Ali. And I'm like, he's here? He, <laughs> he's, he's in the building? And he goes, yeah, we're going to go see him. He's right through that door. And we go through the door. And it was like, you know, Oprah's, ah, you know, that, the light. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, my gosh. And my mother, I go to the right because I see another person, Howard Davis. I don't know if you know who he is. He won the gold medal. He was on my Olympic team with me and uh, Sugar Ray Leonard in 76. And he won uh, boxing. He won his um, weight class, the gold medal. And I see Howard because he's from Queens. And I, like, zip over to him. And I'm like, hi. And my mother goes over to Ali and puts, I have the picture, puts a hand around his neck. She's a little, heavy, fat Jewish woman. And she goes, Mr. (laughs) Muhammad, how are you? My name is Rini, Rini Lieberman from Queens. And my daughter is the greatest of all times with a Z. And he looks at her and goes, and, and I have the picture, he's laughing, and he goes, there's only one greatest of all times, and it's me. And she goes, no, Mr. Muhammad, I know you're good, but my daughter is the greatest of all times. So he calls me over, and I couldn't breathe. And my head is down, and I'm kind of sheepishly walking over. And he goes, your mom says you're good. And I go, no, Mr. Muhammad, um, I'm not that good. I'm the greatest of all time. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, there's two of us? I go, yeah, there's two of us. And, and I hit people, too. He goes, I'm going to ask you to stop hitting people. I said, but you hit people. And he goes, I get paid to hit people. <laughs> it, it, was, it was so hysterically funny. And we would laugh about it years later. He goes, remember when I told you to stop hitting people? I go, yeah, I was a little, little disappointed in you. I got to be honest, champ. <laughs> so that was the moment. And we never looked back. He took our, we exchanged numbers, you know, no cell phone, no internet at the time. And I'd be in college and I would get phone calls from him and, and sports illustrated, um, my senior year, Craig Kirkpatrick did like a 12, 13 page uh, feature on me and Ali called me and he goes, I cried when I saw that article. I, I, my girl, I just, I'm so proud of you. I was like, Oh, I can't believe you called me. He goes, I'm going to come see you when you come to San Francisco. But the university could never get enough security at that time. And it, it didn't work out for him to come see me play. Wow. How how would you describe the path you've blazed? Uh, I have, God has blessed me every day of my life. That's the only clinical reason or answer that I have. Um, because in a perfect world, I'm a, 
athlete, a female athlete from the 60s, 70s, no scholarships, no WNBA, no gender equity, no equality. And it's 2019, and I'm relevant in a, a very powerful way as far as, you know, uh, staying power, um, you know, with, with a woman working in a man's world and getting so many opportunities. And, and I do want to say something uh, about men. They have been my greatest ally. You know, when people say, well, men are holding me back. That's not true. And I think women, we women have to look at what we're doing on some level. I've been championed by men. Any important thing that's ever happened to me in my life, uh, whether it was Olympics in high school, you know, obviously Ali, um, Warren Buffett, you know, kind of befriending me and being a, a good role model in my life. Uh, you know, ESPN, Norby Williamson, uh, all those guys, I was there 28 years. Uh, the NBA, the WNBA, the G League, Donnie Nelson is like my hero because Donnie started this thing, by the way. He doesn't get enough credit because he's not interested in the pat on the back. He just is a doer. When he hired me in 2010 to be the head coach in the now the G League with the Texas Legends, the Mavs affiliate, I'm like, Donnie, you know, he took me from the men's side, excuse me, the women's side of what I had dedicated my life to, to a whole nother area of credibility on the NBA side. Mm -hmm. And I'm so grateful and I'm so humbled by what he did and down deep when Becky gets a head coaching job or whoever, you know, me or whoever else is that next person, we owe a great debt of gratitude to Donnie Nelson from the Dallas Mavericks because he opened, he actually kicked the door wide open. He hired me in 2010. Nobody was thinking about a woman in the NBA then. And not only did he do that, but he was so, supportive in everything that happened. And we, we made the playoffs my first year. And I think it put the bug in, in so many other people's head that, wow, this thing can work. It's really normal and, and comfortable. So he's very important to me. And then of course, you know, Vlade, um, he's going in the hall of fame this year. So congrats to uh, Vlade Divac and Vivek uh, Ramadiv with the Kings and now Ice Cube. I mean, so many important people in my life that gave me a chance. It's, it's not my birthright. Uh, you know, life isn't Skittles. Everybody doesn't get to, to get one. And you have to work hard and you have to grind and you have to have good interpersonal skills and relationships. And just, you know, be confident but humble yourself. Does that, does that know, make sense? It makes perfect sense. It, make, it couldn't make more sense, in fact. You note the impact of those folks giving you an opportunity to coach men. I wonder, you know, what comes with that, and and what what did it tell you about you when they championed you as a person for your intellect, for your resume, for your pedigree, and all of those things that you could be a leader of men. What? Well, first, I'm a mom, and I have a son who plays professionally, um, and. You have to care. I mean, I, I, this is a strength. You must lead with love and kindness. 
you have to be firm but fair. And whether it's coaching DeMarcus Cousins or Seth Curry or Rajan Rondo, Rudy, you know, uh, Rudy Gay, any of the guys I've, I've coached, and, and not only that, but, you know, other guys um, in the NBA uh, in Gerd's camp in the summer. The one thing, you have to be authentic. And you just have to, you don't have to be a jerk. And, but you must come with the goods. Don't show up and not be ready uh, for your moment because you'll be tested and you'll be failed if you don't have that. And so it was so important to me. I was no longer Nancy Lieberman, the basketball Hall of Famer or Olympian or any of that other nice things that people say about me. I was Coach Nancy, and I had to come with the goods. It was so important for me to make sure that if I had, you know, four guys, I needed to know who their wives were. I needed to know about their children. I needed to know about their grandma and their auntie because there's going to be good times and there's going to be difficult times. And in those difficult times, I don't need them to put their hand up like, man, I'm not interested in what you have to say. You know, you only played me three minutes. So I was building relationships. Same thing with my team power, you know, which won the the big three championships. Those kids, here's the rule. I want all your kids in the locker room. I want your wives, your family in the locker room. When we get ready to go have business, everybody has to go. But I want to know who these people are because I want them to know that I actually, you know, I I give a damn about them. Mm. And But I'm going to push you harder than you've ever been pushed before. The expectation level. Uh, Morty, I'm a minimalist. It's we must do this. This is why, and this will be the results. And then it's my job to, to build trust. I have to earn trust from my players in my preparation and how I set them up for success. I want to touch on a couple more things that you mentioned just now, and I've already kept you too long, but I uh, it's really fascinating, and and you articulate everything so well. You noted the Olympic. Uh, being an Olympian, and we discussed that, and you also noted what it was like at Old Dominion, winning those national championships and National Player of the Year and all that. I would love to know what comes with being an Olympic athlete at 17 years old and how that impacts your worldview. What, what was the impact of, of that stage at that age? I, I think sometimes when you're younger, you're a little young and dumb, and that fits you uh you don't feel the pressure. I'm sure, oh my gosh, I'm going to sell myself out. I can remember sitting in the locker room in Montreal and Billy Moore, my Hall of Fame coach, and, I, and you know, my teammate was Pat Summit. And um, I'm sitting there, and she's given like the greatest speech in the history of speeches, first Olympics for women. I guarantee you I was sitting there looking up, counting the light bulbs, going 17, 18, 19. <laughs> I have no clue what I was thinking about. <laughs> I mean, I would, like a, a fly could have went by me, and I would have just turned my head and watched the fly go by. And But when it came time, when I finally got on the court, I was my DNA at that time was just to perform. You know, I was a basketball player. 
and I'm I, I'm playing in the back of the one three one zone, and my job is to not let anybody get to the rim. Or so I I knew my role and what I was supposed to do prior to that. It was so weird. I I, I have never been nervous. Uh, I get excited to play. I get excited to coach. But I've never been nervous in a game. Isn't that interesting? It is, but when it's your calling, you have a, a certain – there's a certain comfort there. I will say it is interesting to me that I learned interviewing Tiger Woods once that he is nervous every single tournament when he steps to the first tee. That blows my mind just because when you have that level of talent and have put in that many hours of effort and work – to refine and define and perfect. You're the goat, man. What are you nervous for? But it just, I always found that to be so interesting. Yeah, I guess everybody um, has their own preparation, uh, mental preparation. Uh, you know, I, I like everybody else, you know, Tiger had made that swing so many times, and I, uh, I had hit that shot. So many times, you know, five, four, three, two, one. So, so many things seem so natural to you that to others, it's like, oh my gosh, how how did Steph make that shot? But it's that you know, it's muscle memory. It's how do you handle the moment? And if you took Tiger or you took Martina or Serena, if if you took Jordan, uh, some of the the greats, Gretzky. And you, it would be fascinating what their mental capacity was in those moments when things totally slow down and you feel, yep. you just feel, uh, gosh, you just feel like you, you cannot help but su- succeed. It's very interesting. And it's, it's, you know, it's a do- probably a Dr. Phil thing, Definitely but it's a, such a cool it's, it's, it's a cool place to be when, when you're in that and you have that, and it's so hard to explain or express. Two more things. Uh, I meant to ask this a moment ago and forgot. I, it, I just remembered when you were discussing the WNBA and the impact of men on your career and those things. I had a really unique conversation last fall interviewing Kevin Durant and Brianna Stewart together, and Kevin was – adamant that it was egregious how uh the female player the lady players are compensated or lack of the lack thereof what is your thought on on how WNBA players are compensated and what should they be compensated it's a great question it depends what side and how you're viewing it and i get asked this quite a bit yes i think WNBA players should be paid more um, I was there at the ex- inception of the league in 97. If you're looking at it as a straight budgetary business item, their widgets sell more than the WNBA widgets, right, worldwide. Um, I would love to see, and, and, and this is, you know, what comes first, the chicken or the egg. Would some of the top players in the WNBA be willing to not go to Europe for two years and to stay in their market and stay in the States and promote the heck out of the game. Because what happens is you only see the players for, for three months or 34 mm-hmm. games in playoffs. 
and then they they have to go make a living in in Europe. I fully understand that. But you call me a pioneer. Well, really, they're pioneers, and the pioneers have to sacrifice. So would you be willing to sacrifice going over for a year or two? You know, maybe your team can compensate you and stay here, get your body some rest, because the more you play in Europe, the less years you have on the back end of your career. I mean, we've seen this. So at at some point, money is going to equal out, you know, the front end or the back end. And then let's see if we can build this and then take players like myself and Lisa Leslie and Ketch and, you know, some of the players from the 90s and let's just hit the ground running and, and try to help market and support each other. And with, the, with the, the guys being so supportive, you can't beat it. When you have, you know, KD and you have LeBron and Chris Paul and Steph Curry and all these guys, you know, a lot of these guys have daughters now. They're, they're Title IX daddies. They want equality, and they're going to help us because they care. How do you define your former teammate Pat Summit's legacy? Oh, my God. Um, first, let me say I miss her. Um, I've known her since I was 15. And she had she was just a powerful figure every day. Uh, as my teammate... She was powerful in her expectation of you. And as a coach, she was defiant in a way that she didn't want to lose, that it was never because we weren't prepared or in great shape. She was tough, man. Um, And she made – you don't realize it sometimes until – you're not playing for her, what she meant to you. It, it, again, that's why I liken it to parenting. Uh, but she, she, gave, she gave coaching such incredible respect and garnered incredible respect from people all over the world, and she brought us a, a huge measure of equality uh, for what she's done. She's respected by everybody, men, women, it doesn't matter. Uh, this is the last thing I have for you this time. It's funny. I feel like every time that I interview someone on, in this platform, one of the cool parts about podcasts is you can just go. I have well, it just good. one question begets the good. next question. Um, but I'll, I'll let you go with this. You are a pioneer and gave a distinct, talented face to women's basketball. And I wonder, uh, with that comes fame. What's it like to manage fame, and how did you learn to manage it? It's taken on different faces. Um, again, in the, the 80s and 90s where people would recognize you, say hi, or you do autograph. It, today, it's so totally different. I know when I walk out of my house, everybody's got a cell phone. I know that I can't have road rage. I know that if I'm in the supermarket and a a little kid comes up to me with his father, they want to talk about the Mavericks or talk about, you know, the Pelicans or Anthony Davis or, you know, Zion or whomever. And you know what? It's, it's okay. Everybody defines fame differently. You know, I, I dislike people. And if you want to come up to me, you want to talk basketball, you want to talk about Tiger, you want to talk about, the big three or cube or anything, come on, I'm your girl. Come, come talk to me 
and uh, give me a hug, give me a high five, ask me your questions, don't be afraid, treat me as if I'm a family member, don't wear me out, <laughs> but just ask me what you want and that'll be, it'll be great for me and it'll be great for you. I, I'm not running with a posse who's going to, you know, Heisman trophy you away from me. No, I, I'm, I'm going to give you a hug and a high five and say thank you. So I, I, I do it as simple as I, I know to do it. Well, I say thank you. Uh, I learned so much, and I appreciate your time and perspective and insight and kindness, uh, extremely kind to me. Thank you so much, Nancy, uh, for your, for for giving me this time. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, and God bless you always. Guys, that interview was brought to you by ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. And we certainly appreciate ZipRecruiter's support of the Marty Smith's America podcast. Travis, that conversation with her, I just found to be so amazing and so fascinating because you just don't have the opportunity in this life to really drill down on the details with someone who actually lived and was the spearhead of so much change and such groundbreaking career moments and groundbreaking personal moments all the way from Rucker Park as a little girl to becoming an NBA coach. I mean, that is an unbelievable ride. You're talking about someone who was an Olympian, someone who who those men in the NBA respected so much for her mind and her pedigree in the game and her experience in the game that they washed away gender lines and said, we need this amazing basketball mind on our staff. Can you imagine as a little white girl jumping on the subways and going into Rucker Park and just acting like it's not, it's nothing? No, and... And above, just completely fearless, utterly fearless. How many people live fearlessly? And I just, uh, I, it, it, it took. I was taken aback by that. You have these these guys who are. I mean, look, that is the most famous basketball court, uh, maybe in the in the country. Uh, it's it's MSG and it's Rucker Park, and when you. Think about her hopping on that train and making her way over there and walking in there devoid of insecurity and looking at those guys who are legendary in that arena and saying, Hey, I'm here to play. Like that's grown men basketball. That's, you don't get layups. That's hard fouls. Don't get those hard fouls or no fouls. And she's walking in there and goes, Is your name Rucker? No, it's not your park. All right, move along. I would love to to chat with those guys. Wouldn't it be neat to hear their perspective on what it was like when this little girl walks in there completely unabashed and ready to hoop? And, you know, I, I imagine they probably were like, wait a minute, what are we talking about here? You're lost. You're not in the right area. You're not in the right place. And then you go build a game that becomes a legendary game that, propels you to the national player of the year to the NCAA championship to the Olympics to the WNBA 
to the NBA as a coach. Uh, it, it, um, it, it's just fascinating. And, and the most fascinating part to me was hearing her reverence and friendship and, and relationship with Muhammad Ali and Lonnie. So that's why his I, wife. I, when Muhammad Ali passed away three years ago, I produced a show shortly after and, um, Ian Fitzsimmons was hosting and he knows her and he said, Hey, reach out to her and let's have her on. And so I've heard some of the stories, but these other stories about the popsicle and going to his grave and different things like is just, it's insane. The, the life and how it's Muhammad was a, just a, a friend to her. He was a friend to her. He was a mentor. He was, uh, he had tremendous influence on shaping a philosophy and, those people are very rare in our lives. Those people who enter your life and remold the philosophical approach that you will take moving forward. And it's readily obvious in hearing her speak about that relationship that he rewrote her philosophical approach. He is the catalyst for her unmitigated desire to dominate. And those people in our lives, it's very rare that someone walks into your life and redefines you to that degree. And he did that for her. He did that for the globe. Muhammad Ali rewrote kindness and redefined the influence that an athlete can have. His global influence is so powerful and so resonant and so wide-reaching. And I certainly witnessed that when I was there in Louisville after his passing. We went there for a week, and we tried very hard to tell his story. And I will tell you, Travis, and those of you listening, uh, I went into that assignment with a little bit of anxiety, and I will admit that's a foreign emotion for me because I feel like I can go in and cover anything. But this is Muhammad Ali, and I knew it was going to be a global moment, his memorial service. It, in fact, was, and I wanted to enter that assignment with that credibility. And in order to do that, I had to have a legitimate, authentic story about Muhammad Ali. And so I called my buddy Tony, who lives in Louisville, and we've been friends for a very long time uh, through our mutual friend Jimmy Johnson, the NASCAR champion. And Tony told me about Derek Anderson. Many of you who are NBA fans, who are basketball junkies, remember DA very well. This man had the craziest hops I've ever seen. He would dunk on anybody and everybody. I don't care who you were, you were getting on a poster. And I had been a big fan of Derek's for a long time. He was a Louisville icon in high school basketball. He went on to play collegiately at Kentucky. Travis will tell you he was at the OSU first. Travis, go ahead. You can tell everybody. I just want to make sure you said the. That's all I really care about. Just, I just want the pronunciation to be correct, but thank you. I understand. I understand. Uh, it's a foreign language to some, but... uh so D.A. went to Ohio State out of high school, wound up leaving there and heading over to Kentucky and had a great, great career there, 
went on to the NBA, had a phenomenal NBA career, including an NBA championship in 2006 with the Miami Heat. And so I went to Louisville, and I spent a day with Derek. Derek grew up in the same neighborhood that Muhammad Ali grew up in, in Louisville. And he is this beacon in the community as well. He's built shopping centers so that people have jobs. He was the first Jordan athlete. And he backs up 18 wheelers full of J's and hands them out to the community. He is, he grew up poor. He grew up in poverty and he had to fend for himself as a boy, a small boy, all the way up through high school. And his story is unbelievable. And when he got out and made it to the league, he made it his mission that he was going to give back to that community. And Ali was his beacon. Ali was his example. Ali was the standard by which he measured his own philanthropic endeavors. And I went up there and we walked around the neighborhood and we talked through his influence on that community and Ali's influence on him. And I will tell you the moment that stopped everything for me, that brought it all into focus. We were walking down the sidewalk towards Muhammad Ali's childhood home, which is still there. It's a pink house. And there were hundreds of people surrounding the house paying homage to Ali's influence globally. They were dropping flowers. They were leaving cards. They were taking photographs. People were sobbing in tears. It was hundreds of people lining the block to come pay their respects at Ali's childhood home. And Derek and I walked up. And, of course, we had TV cameras. We were doing a piece for Sports Center, And so people started to turn around and look. But as they realized that it was Derek... They began to flock. And I finished my interview with Derek and said, you obviously have some people that would like your time. Go ahead. We're good. And as we're standing there, an elderly African-American gentleman walked over to us and handed me his phone. He said, I just, I can't do the selfie thing. I don't even know what that is. Could you please take a picture of us? I said, of course I could. So I turned them around where Ali's home, childhood home, was behind them, and the sun was in their face. And I took this photo. And Derek said his pleasantries to the gentleman and went on to the next waiting throng. And it was throngs of people that wanted Derek's picture. And this gentleman that I had just taken this photo was just standing there staring at this phone. Probably 75 years old, 70, 75 years old. And he had a a bit of a tremble to him and eyes full of tears. And I walked over to him and I said, sir, uh, my name's Marty. I'm with ESPN. I'd like you to please forgive my ignorance here. What is that photo? Why is that so emotional for you? And he said, young man, when Ali could no longer speak, he was still our voice. But we needed an audible voice. And he turned and he pointed at Derek and he said, that's our voice. And even saying it right now sends chills up my back. Every single, I got chicken skin thinking about it. And we later left there and we went over to the bridge 
uh, there in Louisville that legend has it, Muhammad Ali threw his 1960 gold medal off that bridge in protest, in disgust. And we were standing there. And as Derek, as I'm, I'm kind of recounting that story to Derek and asking about Ali throwing his medal off that bridge, I look up. And the sun is in our face, and there there are tears just streaming down Derek's face. And he had to stop and compose himself. And anybody who knows anything about Derek knows that that is the rarest of sights. I was I was a mess, and we embraced, and it was quite a moment that he and I share now, and and will forever share. He is a friend of mine now. And someday I'm going to have him on this podcast to discuss that very thing because the work that that Derek is doing with his AOK charity is remarkable. He is changing and saving lives every single day. And I, I will absolutely have him on this podcast very soon in order to tell you guys about Ali's influence on him and recall his career. There's a lot of good in this world. We see a lot of hatred. We see a lot of venom. We see so much insecurity. We see so much doubt. And it's only exacerbated by social media where everybody looks hunky-dory all the time. The thing is, there are so many people out there, like Derek, who are using their platform to completely change the course of the lives of young people all over this country. Well think, this world. well, think about this, Marty. Muhammad Ali was famous when Nancy Lieberman got the chance to meet him. He could have been a a celeb and just didn't want nothing to do with her, or be be nice and then just moved it along. But he went the third route and said, "I'm going to be nice to her, and then I'm going to become friends and keep it going." Like you don't expect that from him, but he did that. And then look what that does to Nancy, and then look what that Nancy's doing that for other people. And all it takes is you being nice to one person. Look, man. You've known me for a while now. I have long done my very best to live by the mantra, work hard, be kind, the rest takes care of itself. And I truly believe that. There are three things in this life that we can control. We can control kindness, passion, and effort. And if we do that and we do it well, then we can change lives without any effort. You never know. That's, that's one of the biggest messages that I tried to drive home with my book. Never settle, which as an aside is available for pre-order right now. Just go to my Twitter page at Marty Smith ESPN and pick up a copy. I'll sign every one of them. I'm trying to figure out how I can get pre-sales to, to this is a, this is an inexact science. Let me tell you. I don't understand how it all works, but, uh, I'm just going to take it by the horns and, and see if I can start trying to promote it. Travis always makes fun of me. I'm just not that good at, at that No, you, you are the world's worst promoter. <laughs> you really are. Uh, I just don't. It's hard. I had the Charlotte Observer, the local newspaper here in Charlotte, was out here at the house recently, and they, they wanted to do a big story about how I travel all over the globe and do all these really neat things, and I'm so blessed to meet these people and learn from all these iconic people, but I call Charlotte home. And the lady asked me about being the reporter, asked me 
about what it's like being recognized in public now. And I said, I'm just not comfortable. I'm not comfortable talking about that. I don't, I'm, I'm not at all comfortable talking about that kind of thing. And I, I have to get better because I'm trying to sell some books. <laughs> so I'm working on it. If y'all look, if you, if you like the, the, this podcast, if you like how we open people up and discuss their lives, I've heard so much from you guys about the Greg Oden edition. That Greg Oden edition really moved a lot of you guys. And that's so awesome for me. It's so humbling for me. Leroy Parnell, the, the country music icon for me. I mean, he's iconic in my mind. Uh, so many artists. I heard from my buddy Justin Moore, who's a current country music superstar, has a bunch of number ones. He has a new album coming out real soon. I can't wait to hear. He slid me a couple songs, by the way, Travis. Wow. I can't wait for this album to come out. But he heard the Leroy Parnell podcast and said, brother, you have to go interview all the guys from the 90s. That He said that inspired him so much, hearing Leroy's tales and Leroy's path and what he battled and how he made it. He said, man, it inspired me so much. You have to do that with all the 90s guys. And I, you know, joked, well, won't you open up your Rolodex and tell them boys to call us? Yeah, can, can Justin give me a call because I yeah. could use some help with some of these guests. <laughs> but... Anyway, if you guys like what you hear on Marty Smith's America, buy the book for me. And I, I, because that's what the book is. It's how all of these amazing people have shaped me. It's how sitting across from Tiger Woods shaped me. It's how sitting with Nick Saban in his car, just us, the day I met him on the way to work one morning and the unbelievable moment of depth that he and I had in the first 15 minutes that I ever knew him shaped me and reminded me of such important aspects of my life and how we became kindred spirits as a result. That's the book. And I would love if you guys bought it. So thank you all for, for supporting us. We, we just appreciate it so much, but that week in Louisville, I remember standing there, Travis. They placed reporters throughout the motorcade funeral procession route all over the city. And they had Michael Eaves near uh, his childhood home. They had Michael Eaves near Ali's childhood home. Of course, and he's from Eaves Louisville. Eaves is our boy. We share a, we share a house uh, together at the Masters, Travis and I, and, and Matt Barry and Eaves. And, and Eves is from Louisville. And so he, you talk about being influenced by the greatest. Talk to Eves about it. But it was, it was Eves, myself. I know Jeremy Schapp was there. There was a group of us at various points all throughout the city. And they had me stationed at the Ali Center right off the interstate overlooking the river. And as the, and, and we kind of just did a play by play. We tossed it to one another as the procession made its way through the city by us, by our respective positions. We simply painted the picture audibly and visually of what we were seeing. And when when that procession came into view for me, I was standing under a tree amongst thousands of people standing at the Ali Center 
waiting and watching as their native son, as the most influential person to ever be born and raised in their city, drove by the building that bears his name. And it was, I had prayed before it got to me as I'm listening to my colleagues describe what they were seeing. I just asked for guidance and the ability to have the right words because you want to make sure that every word is the perfect word in a moment like that. And I'll never forget it. I'll never forget what it looked like when that motorcade came into view, when that procession came into view, and the overwhelming emotion around me. People were sobbing, guttural, primal sobbing. And you just try to paint that picture as best you can. I won't forget the um, hearse driving and they having us turn the windshield wipers on because the flowers and roses being thrown upon he was unable to see and they had to knock some yep. of them off just because the people running out there and just throwing as many roses as possible on the hearse to honor Muhammad. We're going to get, uh, we're going to get Derek on real soon to, to recap that moment for him and that day for him and, and his career. I know Derek was with Lonnie that day. Um, I just, uh, it's funny guys in this, I've, I've been so fortunate to do things just so far beyond my wildest dreams. And I don't forsake it and I'll never take it for granted. And I know how rare this is. And to be a part of a day like that is humbling beyond words. Um, I don't know. Very rarely do we just sit and, 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 and chat through those types of moments, but I feel very fortunate that, uh, I got to be and, and really be immersed in Muhammad Ali's influence. Thanks so much to Nancy for sharing his life through her perspective with us. Uh, that too was humbling and her unbelievable vulnerability in sharing her story with us. We are better men and better humans because of that. Um, now it's time for the very awkward turn, something Travis and I have gotten extremely adept it's what at we accomplishing. Do. It's what we do. It's just what we do. Before I get to this, I, I want to explain to a lot of you guys who are Marty and McGee fans, what's going on. The long of the short of it is the Marty and McGee podcast is no more. The Marty and McGee radio program from 7 to 9 a.m. Eastern every Saturday is full tilt. The Marty and McGee simulcast is still full tilt on SEC Network. For I, get, I think Saturday is actually the last simulcast show. We will continue to do Marty and McGee throughout the summer on, the, on ESPN Radio on Saturday mornings. And then when we get to the fall... Marty and McGee TV is back on SEC Network. All right. The podcast, however, is no more. So we're going to use the Marty Smith's America platform 
to offer the best of Marty and McGee each week. It might be an interview we do with someone on Marty and McGee. We might throw some snippets of that in there. It might be some of our ridiculous banter about shooting bottle rockets at each other when we were kids or something. But since we're going to make sure that we carry on the at least a part of the Marty and McGee podcast, we felt like it was appropriate, especially when they are this outrageous with the hillbilly headlines. So now it's time for Marty and McGee hillbilly headlines on Marty Smith's America brought to you by Tiso. Tiso, the official watch of the NBA shop at us.tisoshop.com. This is the hillbilly headlines. It's now time for the Southern Gentleman's News Briefing. Just kidding. Here are your hillbilly headlines. What you got, All right, we had an especially hillbilly week. Let's take her on down to Pembroke Pines. Cameras were rolling as a twerking thief allegedly stole more than $300 worth of clothing from a Pembroke Pines store. Police are searching for a woman who is accused of snatching and grabbing the merchandise uh, yeah. from Mad Rag oh, yeah. in Pembroke Pine, yeah. which is located at the 600 block of North University Drive. Well, of course. Yeah. Police said she left the store without paying for any of the items. <laughs> According to Webster's Dictionary, twerking is to dance to hip-hop or pop music in a very sensual way. It's in the, it's in the dictionary? Typically by thrusting or shaking the buttocks and the yeah. hips. While in a squatting or bent over position. Oh yeah! <laughs> Look at this picture on TV. There is this. This is like a stock photo of twerking. <laughs> we so where are in, they? is that in Wrigley in, Field? Are they twerking in, at Wrigley? In graphics, they're like, okay, let's let's do a Google search for twerking, please. No, dude, that's unbelievable. Oh, that's that's, that's something else. There's plenty more in this story, but y'all don't understand how many we have this week. No. Carry on. My wayward son. Hey, let's uh, let's keep it in Florida, why don't we? Uh, Clearwater, Florida. They're calling it the ultimate Florida story. A Clearwater woman woke up early Friday morning to find an 11-foot alligator in her kitchen. Mary Wooshusen says she was rudely awakened by a sudden crash at about 3.30 a.m. And this is what it sounded like when she called 911. Clearwater Police, this is Matt. No rescue, Matt. I have a gigantic alligator who came into my garage and is sitting in my kitchen. A huge one. I'm sorry, is it in your house? Yes. Okay, you said it's in It's huge. It's in your kitchen? Yes. I don't know how it got here, but it's here. Okay, all right. I are you going to deliver it my bedroom? What? Are you safe? Are you in your bedroom? or? Yeah, I shut the door and I'm in my bedroom. I'm not leaving here until you get here. Okay. All right. Um, we're, we're on the way up, ma'am. The, the newspaper deliverer actually called in because she saw it kind of hang around there. So we're on the way. So the newspaper delivery person saw the alligator and then and called 911. Hey, there's an alligator about to break into this lady's house. And then the lady called and said... There's an alligator in my house. You got to sell the house. Did and burn she have it down. a doggy door? Sell the house and burn How it down. How did it get in? Blast Good thing she didn't door. have a dog. It went through the, door. through the door. Tore the kitchen up. Like tore up the tore up the refrigerator. Uh, put dents in the wall. Smashed so a couple of chairs. Dead. He's eleven foot long. Also knocked Imagine wine what, over. 
I just saw Godzilla Wednesday night. Knocked what over, Travis? Wine. The uh, police tweeted out that's not blood from the alligator. It's red wine. Oh, okay. okay. Well, that's wasteful. Well, the picture, the picture is, if I walked into my kitchen and saw that, you sell the house and burn it down. Like I couldn't, I couldn't deal with. It. That's a nightmare for you. All I right. guarantee you that I'd be needing some depends. All right, let's head on up here to Maple Grove, Minnesota. Why not? It don't get much weirder than this. That's the lead to the story. Okay. It doesn't get much weirder than this. I don't know. Two high school seniors, Taylor Brodsderson and Jimmy Lou. Jimmy Lou. We're preparing for a giant graduation party this weekend okay. when something went horribly awry. Right. The 600 chicken fingers Taylor had ordered from the Maple Grove Raising Canes, they discovered, had been picked up by somebody else. All right. The party started in an hour. I was kind of in shock, Taylor said. Like, someone stole our chicken. Taylor's dad, Shane, was suddenly an unprepared host. He had nothing to feed the 300 guests. I never made a contingency plan for stolen chicken, Shane said. 600, Jimmy exclaimed. What do you do with all those chicken fingers? Shane Brodsderson didn't file a police report, and Raising Cane's hasn't either, though a spokesperson told us they're investigating what happened. The manager at the Maple Grove location did, however, make sure Brodderson got 600 new chicken fingers in, in order to feed the graduation party. He started them off with 200 right away and had 400 more in just one uh, one more hour. Good on y'all, Canes. That was the most amazing thing, Shane. Have y'all ever had Canes? Was how fast they made that one. <laughs> <laughs> I no. cannot say I've ever had no, canes. canes. No. So I would steal 600, and especially the cane sauce and Texas toast that comes with it. I, I'm with the person that took it. I, What's cane sauce? Is that like a Thousand Island mixed in with some mustard? I don't know something? what it is, but it's delicious, and all they serve is they serve chicken fingers and fries. <laughs> we're getting, we're getting, I don't know, from the set. Hey, let's take it down east right here in North Carolina. Uh, Clayton, North Carolina. A Wilson woman is charged with shoplifting less than $20 worth of items from a Clayton Walmart after she was found hiding in the trunk of her car, drenched in sweat and Mountain Dew. Sounds like a party. 34-year-old... Jump on Mountain Dew! 34-year-old Linda Reeves was seen placing merchandise in her purse instead of her shopping cart. She became confrontational when approached by the staff and ran outside... They found her hiding in her trunk, consuming whatever it is she had stolen, and was shaking and covered in sweat and Mountain Dew. Like Travis with that pound cake. <laughs> <laughs> what you got, son? Rowan County, North Carolina, oh, right here, God. our neighbors. Yeah. WBTV. A China Grove man was shot in both legs and assaulted with a handgun oh, by his good. new brother-in-law, according to a report at the Rowan County office in North Carolina. Oh, that's not good. Sheriff's office, pardon me. Kenneth Mills, 61, married Debbie Mills on Saturday. Yeah. According to the report, Kenneth Mills got into a disagreement with his new brother-in-law, old Michael Ray Macy, 50. <laughs> Macy apparently brought a dog to the wedding reception venue on Cannon Farm Road. Yeah. Mills confronted Macy about bringing the dog, and the venue staff asked Macy to take the dog and leave. Okay. Macy also had been given the responsibility of writing Just Married on the back of the truck being driven by the newlyweds, but he failed to do so. Sometime, sometime later, Mills called Macy to ask him why he hadn't decorated the truck, to which Macy replied, expletive deleted, You! <laughs> Mills then drove over to Macy's house 
Macy approached Mills in the driveway, first striking him in the head with a handgun, then shooting him in both legs. That's not good. The sheriff's office and Rowan Emergency Services responded. Mills was taken to Northeast Medical Center to be treated. On Sunday, Macy came to the magistrate's office and was charged with assault with a deadly weapon inflicting serious injury. Bond was set at $1,000. A $1,000? <laughs> <laughs> boy, David Wisnett, one That's of our, our boy, Dave. correspondent. correspondent. Exactly right. Look at right. that cute dog. Hey, here's one more, and this is I feel like this is loosely tied to all those chicken fingers missing. Snoop Dogg broke the Guinness World <laughs> Record for largest gin and juice. While you were barbecuing over bum, the weekend, bum, bum. Snoop Dogg was making history and breaking records. Uh, he, uh, a 132-gallon gin and juice. With so much drama in the LBC, it's kind of hard being Snoop D-O-double-G, but I. At the Bottle Rock Napa Valley Music Festival, he was with Warren G. Of course he And was. some guy from Top Chef. And they made a 180 bottles of gin, 154 bottles of apricot brandy, and 38 jugs of orange juice. Wow. And then he stuck a gigantic pink umbrella in it and stirred it with a straw. And then... <laughs> I'm assuming that he's the one that stole those 600 chicken fingers <laughs> from the canes, right? I mean, what else are you going to do? I feel like Snoop Dogg's probably knocked down a couple chicken fingers so later. So much drama in the LBC. Oh. It's kind of hard being Very rarely do you have the opportunity on the Southeastern Conference Network and ESPN Radio nationally to sing Gin and Juice. However, I managed to pull that off. Uh, it's just, uh, I, every time I hear Hillbilly headlines, every time we're in the middle of it, it's just, it's remarkably stupid. I'm still a little upset with you guys though. I get that you, especially Marty, are a, a weird eater. So I didn't expect you to have had canes too often, but I was hoping that you've had it at least once or twice. And the fact that neither of you even knew what canes was, or, Never heard of it. Or the, the amazingness that is the cane sauce. Yeah. Like we got to work on that. The next time is we're that, around. Is that an Ohio thing? Uh, it's in Ohio. I know it's, they've got it, um, down south in some places. It's not a whole lot up here in Connecticut. It just depends. But the next time that I'm around you and if it's nearby, you're at least trying one chicken finger with cane sauce. I wonder if their, I wonder if their soundtrack includes Betty Davis eyes. <laughs> It just plays on loop inside. It, it should. Just might. It should. And I mean, to start it off. To... <laughs> uh, we probably shouldn't be breaking out inside. No, jokes, no, no, no. But I don't care. It's funny. Tiso is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tiso's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. I'm still waiting on mine. The Tiso Chrono XL is a great watch. For those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. While the Tissot PR100 family of watches brings together sporty and feminine details for a collection that is bold, romantic, and ideal for the modern woman. Shop Tissot at us.tissoshop.com and at select watch and jewelry stores Nationwide. I bet that thing looks real sporty on a wrist, Travis. Maybe, maybe I'll get, see, I'll get Laney a watch. How about that? Uh, that'd be fine with me. I, you get Laney a watch and, uh, I'll figure out how to get a Tiso one. I bet, you know, 
I, I, I bet KD has one. I bet, I bet Tiso has sent all those NBA players a Tiso watch. Chronograph XL. And then if I get Laney one, I figure that just makes your life easier. Well, it definitely makes my You know, life we had Chase Rice on, Patrick Dempsey. I was talking about getting guests on for her anyway, so maybe if I get her the watch, you know, that's who we're trying to win over, really, is Laney. That was the other one that everybody, like, that, that Chase Rice one, that Chase Rice conversation, so many people discussed that with me because of his vulnerability and the compass by which his life is directed and the way that he is like, I loved his comment. His comment was, if, if I go try to be Chris, I know I'm not Chris Stapleton. Like, who says that? The guy that understands who he right. is. That's right. And I also, and, so all eyes on me, uh, went to number one. And I like to think that it was because of us. Well, it might be, but all eyes on me is actually Tupac. Um, <laughs> eyes on you. Uh, eyes is, on you. Got it confused. <laughs> All eyes on me is, is Pac. Yes, yes, got it confused. Uh, eyes on you. Is eyes right. on you, is, but uh, I like to think that we made that number one. Like, I, it probably wouldn't have made it without us, so Chase, you're welcome. Yeah, I, I, if we're not invited to the number one party, I'm going to be seriously disappointed. Yeah. The- um. All right, we tried. Hopefully you guys got something out of that. I'm sure that intelligence quotients all over the Marty Smith's America landscape have plummeted this time around. However, we appreciate your loyalty. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so much to ZipRecruiter and to Tiso for believing in our program. Travis, awesome job getting Nancy. Uh, appreciate all your hard work always, brother. Thanks so much to Louise for being crazy enough to let us do this from the jump. By the way, I just learned that Louise was cast in her first feature film. <laughs> she might end up being our guest one day. Wait, what? Yes. Louise got cast in some feature film. I did not know that. Yeah, you're going to have to ask her about that. Uh, thanks so much to Dan and Stu and Mike and all the guys down there in the shipping container and everybody involved in the Lebetard and Friends podcast network. We are so blessed to be a part of that. Their belief in us has given us such a great platform, and we're so appreciative of, of Dan Lebetard and his merry band of idiots for letting us be a part of that merry band of idiots. It's uh, it's been massive, massive for us and and this property. Thanks so much to you guys for your loyalty and listening every single week. We appreciate it and your kindness. Let us know what you think, man. Let us know. Subscribe, rate, and review. It matters to our sponsors who allow this thing to be free, where you can just go click on it. You don't have to pay anything. And I'll read the reviews. And, and review it. Yeah, Travis. And, again, as we said last week, I want to keep beating this drum, too. Let us know who you want us to talk to. Give us ideas on who you think would be interesting guests on the Marty Smith's America podcast, and Travis will get to work booking them. We would love to know. So send us some feedback, subscribe, rate, and review. And as we say every single week, every week, without fail, thank you so much to the United States military. Thank you so much for the sacrifices that you guys make for us so that we can live in a free country. We are free. We are free to go and do and be and aspire. And it's because of the sacrifices that our men and women in uniform make all over this world. In foreign lands, in the current conflict, domestically, we're so appreciative. Thanks so much, too. I'm remiss often that I don't think our policemen and our firemen and our first responders, if y'all see them, if you go into dinner and you see a few firemen sitting there. You don't have to buy them dinner. 
They'd appreciate that. Go over there and just say, hey, I appreciate what you guys do for us, man. Thank you. It matters. It matters. And uh, it matters to us that you guys take the time to listen. We appreciate y'all. That's the Marty Smith's America podcast, volume 56. Y'all be good.